0: You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today we have the great Kai Bond on Go. Uh, welcome to the show.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks for having
0: uh, me. Kai Bond is a serial entrepreneur. Also, he's an investor for Comcast uh, Ventures.
1: Uh, we're gonna dive right in. Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. So. You know, I've been uh, working in tech for about the last 20 years, started off at what I thought was the cutting edge in mobile uh, back in the late 90s, Um, you know, traveling back to Botswana where my mom's from and seeing... You know, everybody with a phone running around. And I was just like, this is going to be your, your future. Mom from? She's from Botswana. Okay. Nice. Um, and so I was traveling through Africa and saw what was going on in the mobile ecosystem there. And the fact, you know, that in the U.S. at that time, you couldn't even send cross-carrier text messages. Um, and people were taking pictures. And, you know, this is a point in time where I saw people doing, you know, mobile commerce in the 90s um, on the continent. And so I wanted to dive in. so I came uh, back from that trip and was like, I'm going to get into mobile, um, and started working on messaging, got a job at Microsoft, um, spent a bunch of years there. And after about three and a half years at Microsoft decided that I wanted to get back to New York. So I moved out to Redmond. I came back to New York city, joined a few startups, um, and quickly realized that most of the people who were running startups that I worked with weren't necessarily that much better at anything than I was, whether that was, um, business development, design, marketing, and so I decided I wanted to take the plunge. They had one skill that I didn't have um, any expertise in, which is fundraising, which is a whole different ball game. and I was like, all right, I gotta master that. So, um, you know, founded a company in 2005, 2006, Um, There was a marketplace for trading video games. We were trying to be the stub hub for the gaming industry Um, at a time where people were still getting Netflix, you know, DVDs in the mail. uh, We had a peer-to-peer trading platform for used games. Um, That business wound down after about two years, a lot of struggles, a lot of hardship, you know. Dead broke, tons of debt, and pouring everything that I Mrs. had into payroll. it. You know, <laughs> payroll, not paying myself so I could pay everybody else. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, after you know, you know, putting myself in that kind of, uh, you know, debt and, and and hardship, um, there was only one thing to do and was to go back and do it again. So I started another company a couple years later um, in the cash gaming space. This was 2010. We fundamentally believe that Pasco, which is the regulatory uh, environment around game uh, gambling, uh, was going to change in 2012. Was kind of our prediction. So we started a company called Cash Play Games. Those were chance-based casino games like yeah. slots, dice, and roulette, tied to a sweepstakes engine. So we ran that company for a while. Another crazy journey as an entrepreneur. You know, got to a signed LOI to acquire the company for about twenty million dollars. One hour before the LOI expired, term sheet was pulled. They ended up acquiring a competitor. They were running a process. Uh, Superstorm Sandy hit. How much money was put in? 600000 uh, 600000 600, okay. Yeah, Yeah. So it was a good outcome right at that yeah. point in time. And it was only nine months in. Um and so you know that term she got pulled like a lot of lessons there again just yeah. pain. Let, let's talk yeah. about that. Yeah.
0: I have uh, experience with that where you know there's a deal on the table or someone's talking you know some really big talk. You may even start due diligence. Yeah, can you talk about the mistakes with entrepreneurs counting the money? Yeah, before the money's in the bank, yeah. essentially, you know, folks expecting some type of value to come into the company. They may start hiring, they may start looking at all these different things, but talk about that.
1: Deal's not done until the deal is done. Like, you know, we had, we took our entire senior leadership team of this company out to Seattle. Um, My CTO, the head of the game studio, myself, two engineers. You know, we had visa transfer agreements done. You know, this, this deal was, I looked over at the banker and I was like, what's good. And he was like, this is a layup. He's like, let's go and drink. And I'm like, nah, we're not drinking tonight. We're not celebrating, you know, term sheet doesn't expire until Friday at midnight. Like I'm taking a red eye home. I'm staying here, you know, and I think the expectation, the excitement, people get carried away either with the money uh, or the success, you know, and, and so You know, we were still running the business as if nothing changed. You know, we we knew that we had to execute and deliver. So when we got back, you know, the best thing that happened was my CTO was in the room. And when I talked about what happened and he had his laptop open, you know, sad faces in the room. People were going to make a million dollars.
0: I imagine he just
1: shut his laptop and was like, fuck them. I didn't want to be acquired by them anyway. I got work to do and just went back to his desk. He was like, I don't even want to hear anymore. Like, I don't care about the explanation or the reasoning or the logic or whatever. Like, we still have a good business. Let's get back into it, you know? But I think a lot of people have conversations. You know, I've seen entrepreneurs get carried away, you know, even if deals don't go that far in diligence, Um, you know, it's just like anything else on the venture side, term sheets get pulled, you know, in the the long diligence process Um, and M&A term sheets get pulled in deep transactions for commercial partnerships late on in the game. And what you need to realize is no matter what somebody is telling you, you know, they may be a champion in the organization. You know, the person that we were working with was a senior vice president, but the CEO had two competing teams looking at deals in the same space to satisfy the same slot that they wanted filled. And he got these proposals back to him and he chose one of the two, you know, so the person who was the champion for our deal left a month later You know, he didn't get the deal he wanted done. And so, you know, and and, and these guys both reported to the CEO of the business. Um, Yeah. And so you got to get right to the top, you know, until it's done. It's not.
0: That deal uh, doesn't happen at Switch Games. Uh, What happens next? Yeah.
1: So, you know, it was a tough time. Super Sandy hit. You know, we couldn't raise money. You know, at that point, it was late. It was late in uh, in, uh, Q4, which is a terrible time to fundraise, right? You're into November now. You know, nobody's going to take a new deal and try to get it rushed through to committee, you know, before Christmas. So we try to bootstrap and keep the business alive and keep it going. You know, we had O-1 visas. We had H-1 visas. So we couldn't bootstrap because they can't go down to zero salary. Yeah. um, Based on sort of the structure of of the language in these visa agreements. So we had to shut the business down. Um, And, you know, that was devastating, right? That was uh, one of the hardest times in my life. And, you know, I took a, I took some time off to try and reflect, you know, and I told a story the other day, you know, I sat down in an office, you know, I was getting older and I was like, man, I got responsibilities, you know, I got to figure I out what I'm to do. you're and in I, a deep depression. Yeah. There, it's just, you're means, in a funk, man. You're yeah. in a haze, you know, like you go from what you think is the top of the world, yeah. you know, owning, you know, 50% of a business, there's going to be a real outcome to winding down a company in less than 120 days. Yeah. And so... The psychological pressure, the emotional pressure—you um, know—I got sick. I was physically ill, you know, for a while, and and you know, really contemplated what I was going to do. I sat down at an office, and I took a job. I took a, a normal job again, which I hadn't done for like ten years. And I looked around, and I was like, I made a mistake. I had to go to the guy who hired me and walk down the hall and was like. This isn't going to happen. I can't stay here. This isn't for me. He's like, what happened? I need yeah. to make it to orientation. Yeah. Like, you know? Yeah. Like, and man, so, guys are, yeah. I can see them saying, I this guy's <laughs> unstable. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. <laughs> and I am. So, Because I went back and did another startup. Yeah. Um, and I did a third startup. Um, and this time it was, it was in the smart TV space. It was in, um, you know, the, the platform side. And we had a very simple vision, which was all broadcast television is the same. And when you sit in front of the television and you have another screen, you're getting your custom personalized content directly from that phone or tablet or or laptop. And, you know, our main vision was how do we take the content on a mobile device and put it directly on TV? You know, custom Twitter feed, Instagram, whatever it may be. We ended up signing a partnership with CBS where we did fantasy football real time. You know, your scores, your opponent's scores, stats, league standings, across the board um, as a custom ticker. And and as we rolled that out, we knew that the interactive media teams were loving it. We were taking it to people, we were showing it to them. It It was a, you know, WYSIWYG editor to get all of their second screen content directly on TV you know, sort of fulfilling this vision around custom content delivery. And what we realized over time was there was actually a larger problem. There was a larger set of challenges that they had. And that was actually the fragmentation in the ecosystem that we saw early on Um, in mobile was very similar, right? You've got Samsung, LG, Roku, Xbox, uh, you know, Apple, PlayStation, uh, you know, Chromecast. You go through the list, they have to support, you know, 10 platforms. And so we ended up taking our software and creating a WYSIWYG editor that allowed for rapid development of smart TV apps. Um, and that was you know, kind of um, something that we could sell. It was a SaaS platform. It wasn't just a media play. And when we would go in and talk to the people that were spending 250 to $500,000 per smart TV app and telling them that for a 10th of the price, we could support 90% of the functionality they bought it. And so we started selling this to large media companies. And once we started getting traction on both fronts, we had a meeting with the team in uh, at Samsung um, in Suwon in, in South Korea. And we flew out and we met the leadership team there, a gentleman by the name of BK Yoon, uh, who ran their TV team as the CEO of the TV side for a long time, uh, I think a lifetime Samsung executive. And um, he stopped me about halfway through the meeting when we were talking about our platform and was like, stop is like, we'd like to buy the company. So we ended up, you know, having that transaction, um, you know, in the meeting real time. Wow. And after about, after about nine months of building, um, we ended up selling the business after about 13 months.
0: How does that happen in a meeting uh, where, you know, you start talking about build terms?
1: Yeah, we, you know, that was a unique case. They were building something that was very similar. They had the same vision and alignment. And so when we started talking, you know, even though my Korean is non-existent and their English wasn't great, we were speaking the same language because we knew the value that we wanted to deliver to customers on TV. Uh, they were already working on an integration for custom content. Uh, it was a brother by the name of Tiamat Taylor, um, a guy Jim Albrecht out in California in San Jose. And so when we had the right sort of core technical DNA and proven traction, and they had the hardware and distribution um, those two things came together, and, and you know it was it, it was a, a no brainer at that point in time.
0: Uh, when you're talking about valuation and yeah. maybe a earnout, it is yeah. that's in that discussion. It wasn't. You know, okay, there, okay. Was, there, there was it's there was there like, was a
1: conversation yeah. that was you know we want to buy, and and you know we were there you know being represented by some of the folks in the U.S. and you know they, they kind of were like, look, we'll we'll take this discussion offline. Yeah. You know, yeah. but it's like, but,
0: it, we, but we want to we want to hook up, but we'll.
1: Talk it about was the clear intent. Yeah. It was clear intent. Like, hey, we don't. Want to just partner here, right? Yeah. Like we see something more strategic. We were open to it. Uh, we knew how difficult the market was after having, you know, spent our time, um, you know, looking at the space and doing a market analysis of the TAM. And, um, and yeah, the conversations took about three months to close the transaction, though, because that was April. Yeah, um, And that was a wild time because, you know, it was the World Cup. We were doing our largest launch ever around the World Cup and having this interactive content globally. And that's really what kind of got everything going in that June time frame to really push towards an August transaction. So no, the, you're not
0: going to shop that deal, what the buyer...
1: You know, like we, had, we had strategic investment from Samsung on the venture side, um, and they had been great partners to us. You know, we were, went three months into the, the, the company, David Un, who's now the chief innovation officer at, at Samsung Next here in the U.S. You know, he, he gave us a platform, right? People talk about corporates and strategics, but, you know, BK Yoon came to the U.S. for our office opening, And we were 60 days in and David was like, you're going to give a demo, you know? And I'm like, we're not ready to give a demo. Are you crazy? And he's like, you're going to give a demo, (laughs) you know? And we did, you know, we worked around the clock to get this thing polished in a way that we could show something off. And... The app crashed. (laughs) We tried to launch it. We were trying to give this demo. We've been testing it all day at work. Of course, we fired up the TV and it crashed. And people were like, what the hell is this? Um, But nonetheless, that senior level, like C-level exposure at day 60, then when we went back 180 and showed them what we were doing, I mean, it was crazy, you know? And so that was part of the nature of our relationship, the alignment, and what we felt was right for the business in that time.
0: Was there any argument internally like, hey, you still need to shop this deal? You need to go through some price discovery.
1: Yeah, you know, we probably should have, right? And we we had that opportunity. Um, For us, the unique nature of the alignment and where we were going post-acquisition was a huge difference. Ty was running the division. He was a brother who I knew for a long time. And I've seen, I worked in M&A, right, at IAC. Um, And we acquired a bunch of businesses in the game space when I was there. Um, And, you know, seeing post-merger integration go wrong and people not hitting earnouts and leaving, you know, we were in a unique space where they were acquiring Boxy. you know, the guys who who had created the smart TV uh, hardware box. They were moving into an office on 18th Street. We didn't have to relocate, like you know, our lives weren't going to be up, you know, upended and, and have to move. And so there were a lot of things that were aligned outside of price that we knew that would dictate the success and happiness of the business and me as a person and going through two failed startups and knowing that, you know, um, things can happen. cost yeah. isn't, you know, price isn't everything for me at that point in time. Like money's great, but it, it you know, it, it's not going to buy you happiness. And so that part of the equation was key for us.
0: Got it. And so how do you get to Comcast after this deal?
1: Yeah. So I spent a year, you know, sort of um, integrating our software and our stack and in, in our team into this larger division and org. Uh, we launched it. It's now called Samsung Extra. You know, it was launched at CES. There was a big event around it. It was great. Um, you know, uh, after a year... Uh, you know, I'm a terrible, terrible employee. You know, I've been managing my own business for 10 years. I was now in a 180,000 person division in a 300,000 person company. Um, And I was traveling back and forth to Seoul once a month. I was on the West coast once a month, you know, it was just physically taxing. uh, And I had the conversation that I wanted to leave and they were fortunate enough to say, why don't you come? and to Samsung Next, uh, which is our software innovation fund in the US, and run our accelerator in New York. And I was like, like early stage, that's where I'm at. I love New York, I know how to navigate Samsung for strategic, and this was right around VR when they were rolling out the headsets, um, where there was a lot of AI and smart home technology and just different segments of the market that I was interested in, right? I'd always worked in mobile and gaming and media and entertainment. And so I wanted to get more into some of the deep tech side of the house. And so I spent a year running that program. Um, and I got um, an opportunity to meet the Comcast Ventures folks. Um, and I'd known them for years in the New York ecosystem and pitched them several times and always had a good experience working with them. And, you know, they reached they out to They turned you down
0: before. They turned me down three yeah. times,
1: you know. But I went to work there regardless because the way in which they were thoughtful, um, and engaged in the feedback. I actually went and read all the emails was, from uh, when they turned my business down. Were you like, pitching to Crowder? No. So at the time, I was pitching to um, Sam Landman um, and Andrew Cleland um, in New York. Andrew was the was on the board of FanDuel. And um, you know, I was doing a cash gaming business, right? So he kind of knew what was going on. Sam had done a bunch of the interactive media stuff and streaming. Uh, you know, he's an investor in Cheddar TV and kind of understands the new form of media that's coming out. So you know, when I was pitching. Um, you know, my most recent business and Pixie TV, I talked to him and I went and read all the emails and how they turned me down and why, and what they thought was going to go wrong and the issues. And they were right, (laughs) you know, and some of the challenges and market size, right? Some of those deals was a good outcome for me because we only raised a couple hundred thousand dollars. It's not an outcome. That's going to be a fund maker for one of them. Right. And so Um, had some conversations, they had this opportunity to join in New York, which was really a unique role. It was, it was a, uh, sort of a a two-sided role. One of it was, you know, running Catalyst Fund, right? So that was, that's really what I came into Comcast Ventures for is to manage Catalyst Fund. That's a $20 million fund focused on African-American and Latino founders, right? We all know the stats, less than 1% of venture capital goes there, $130 billion of venture capital in the ecosystem last year. You know, only 26, you know, female founders of color, you know, have raised more than a million dollars, right? The disparity is crazy. And so I knew how hard it was for me over the course of, you know, 10 years raising money as a founder. And I figured that, you know, what better position could I be in than to coach and mentor and advise on the things that I've done well and done poorly, uh, distribute capital to phenomenal founders and sort of try to help manage those two successful outcomes, right? Um, and so, I had the opportunity to join. I jumped at it. Um, you know, my, an investor who invested in my business and I worked at Hatch Labs during sort of the, the investment in Tinder and, and ran cash play out of that accelerator. You know, Dinesh Morjani, he's the managing director out in L.A. And he joined a couple months prior to me. And knowing that the guys in New York were good, Dinesh was on my voting committee, sort of everything came together. And, um, you know, we were able to kind of take it to the next level. So I've been there now for about two and a half years. Um, Do you you have the
0: autonomy where I want this deal and, hey, I can't get vetoed?
1: Yeah. So, you know, every fund is different. Um, And there's check writing and discretion at various levels. You know, I have an investment committee uh, on the Catalyst Fund side. You know, it's a three-person committee, majority rules. Um, You know, I don't have 100% discretion of I can just go and cut a check. But the investment committee is supportive because I've developed – you know, specific themes and philosophies around sections of the market in direct-to-consumer, in gaming, in marketplaces that are well-defined. And so if something falls within that wheelhouse and we have capital to deploy, we're going to go after it aggressively and the likelihood that that deal gets done is damn near 99% unless there's something really hairy about the deal so or the an issue. 99%, yeah.
0: 99% if, if you're bullish on something, yeah. you pretty much, it's it's a go.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and at the end of the day, you know, the committee is there to provide support, feedback. Right? These are smart people who've been working in venture for a long time. And having that you know, uh, lens and that feedback is important to get to the right outcomes.
0: What's your average uh, check size?
1: Last year it was about four fifty. We say about five hundred thousand, but we did a couple of smaller checks as well. Fit in, you know. We target five hundred k at the seed as a sweet spot for us. You know, if we can invest and try to push, you know, towards you know ten percent ownership at that phase, that's great. But if there are outsized returns with larger rounds and specific founders or an opportunity to get into a space where we can add a tremendous amount of value, a market that we know, we'll make exceptions for sure. Um, and so checks can go up or down. You know, we did a three million dollar check into an AI company up in Toronto, um, that's disrupting the legal space. And so, you know, that came partially out of Comcast Ventures and partially out of Catalyst Fund, right? And so we have this ability to work together The, the way that we try to structure everything now is we have autonomy, you know, at the seed to really do what I want. But if I'm trying to, you know, really push in series a and be supportive of a business, you know, that's what we did with Ross intelligence, right? We did the seed out of catalyst and then we wrote an even larger check at the a with the support of Comcast ventures. So we could come in and buy real ownership up, you know, and these are, our businesses that we all believe in, you know, yeah. the, the the lens that I want to go through is, I don't care if it's a black or a brown founder, the deal should be good enough that you know everybody in the main fund wants in on this, right? Yeah. And you know, you see that with a multi, you know, multitude of tier one VCs who've invested alongside us with Catalyst.
0: What's been your what has been your toughest no? Where hey, you went home and maybe thought about that a couple of nights, like that was a tough one, or have you had a tough one? Like I have. That?
1: Yeah. Um, I can't name the specific deal. It was a larger deal. Um, it was a 250 million dollar check that I wanted to push through 250? this year. yeah. And so wow. we had to go. You know, it was even beyond the the scope of um, of ventures and take it up a level to to corporate. It was a huge check. It was tough. It was a tough time to get it done. Obviously, you know, we had gone through a large transaction with Sky TV, and you know. We have some of this capability, you know, when you look at some of the investments we've made with, you know, even NBC and Comcast, you know, as an example, you know, something like Snap, right, where we come in pre IPO with a $500 million check, right? And these are the types of deals that that are, you know, going public that will that'll be real market movers. And so it was exciting to so work like on because later, I focus exactly. Yeah, I focus yeah. on the seed most of the time, and so it was exciting to work on something larger and later stage. Um, and it was very difficult to to hear the no because you know a seed deal you might work on for two or four weeks. You know you're going to get to a no. You're going to wire out pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, when you take a full quarter to do diligence on one deal and you shut everything else down to kind of move forward with it, it's frustrating. And when you think it's the right thing for the business, it's frustrating. But at the end of the day, you know, I understand why, you know, and the logic behind it. Um, And, you know, I think... There's no venture capitalist that you will talk to who will either say, I regretted passing on a deal or I regretted a deal that I couldn't get pushed through committee in some way. And so I don't think it's unique to to me in any way, but, you know, I I felt my lumps on that one for sure.
0: There were reports that, I don't know if it was your fund or Comcast Ventures, was looking at Fire Festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, Fire Festival has been in the news. Yeah, there were flags raised in the due diligence process. Can you yep. talk about sure. anything about about that? Yeah, sure. I
1: mean, look, um, we see thousands of deals a year, right? Yeah. Uh, the reality is, I see about 400 to 600 deals on an annual basis, depending on the year and repeat founders and how you count new. You know, you talk about a partnership of eight and principles, you know, across the board. We're looking at thousands of deals. Um, And there's a reason why you do diligence the way that you do. (laughs) And dig into company financials and understand the flow of capital and what's going on. We did our diligence and we passed, right? And I think there's a lot that's, uh, you know, misrepresented in the media um, about, you know, what the the ins and outs of that were. Um, I can't speak at length to it. um, But what I will say is, You know, we passed. And I think at the end of the day, um, you know, what gets caught up is that, you know, oh, we were looking at this, like the ticketing business. We looked at one section of it. We had an exploration into the other. We passed. And that was that.
0: How does that someone's pitching a festival to you? I mean, uh, before you get to the due diligence. Yeah how are you looking at it in terms of its tech orientation? Yeah. Or was there something kind of more tech that p- people don't know about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: I, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the documentaries, yeah. but you know, they there was a, there was a business there, you know, that was really a lead gen business, right? Around booking, um, and a marketplace business. Um, and that was what was most interesting to us, right? We look at marketplace businesses, you know, we haven't done events, businesses or festival businesses. That's what gave us the most pause anyway. Yeah. right? And like, why would you we get into this? this if you party. have this other core business, that's great over here. Yeah. What, well, you know, so, so, you know it is what it is like I said I can't talk at length about it um yeah. given um given sort of the the communications plan on our team but you know that's all I'll say on it
0: before an entrepreneur steps to you yeah with a pitch and uh they're fortunate enough to get an introduction or talk to you based on your experience what do they need to know absolutely before they think about stepping to you
1: Yeah. I always say, you know, it's easy to do research, right? Like everybody has a Twitter feed or a LinkedIn profile or a blog. Like people come to me all the time and they're like, so what do you guys do here? You know and I'm like? It's so easy to come out and know. Yeah. They're like, so what are you investing in? You know, well, it's all public, right? It's it's all out there. You can look at our website. Like immediately you haven't done your homework on this. Like, you know, that's just sloppy, right? There's no excuse for that. You can do that walking from Broadway Lafayette stop to our office, (laughs) you know, 250 feet, you could pull up our website and see what we've invested in, you know, the last five deals we've done. So, you know, that's a red flag for us, you know, you know, not knowing the fund and our focus and what we've invested in, not knowing my background and, you know, listening to the podcast that I'm in, you know, if you're really serious and and you want to, you know, uh, build a relationship with somebody, you know, I'm, I'm doing the same stalking online before everybody else comes in. Who do we know? Who are we mutually connected to?
0: I would call this the lack of seriousness flag where, you know, entrepreneurs are pitching to a hundred, 200 people and people coming to you and they don't understand the severity uh, of this meeting in terms of that may be one out of a hundred that says yes, but they won't do the research.
1: It's, it's simple and it's sloppy and I see it happen too much that people just don't do their homework on us as a fund or don't do their background checks on the people they are talking to. Um, it goes a long way. Um, you know, I think the other side is, you know, when there are, you know, it's clear that a founder doesn't have a really good understanding of the unit economics. You know, the deals that I've done in the investments I've made, you know, you can look at it and it's like, we know our CAC to LTV. We know our conversion rates, our funnel, our pricing, where there are levers, what we can change in our, you know, distribution system, you know, as we scale to, you know, gain more profitability. And, you know, most of the time I'm investing at the seat. Right. And so I, you know, this is the entire goal of a seed process, right? It's like, understand your unit economics, right? When you get to the A, it's just pouring fuel on the fire. And so, you know, when someone comes to me and they're like, well, you know, I'd have to go back and get that stat. When I was a founder, I was living and breathing those numbers every day. You know, that was breakfast, lunch, dinner, midnight snack, looking at and, and running a custom profile of analytics and trying to figure that out. And, and, to me, if somebody doesn't understand that as a founder, I feel so distant, right, from them because I'm that just seems so core to the mission. And so unit economics and understanding their their, their business just inside and out, uh, to me, instead of just selling the vision, right? But I do think there are a lot of people who get foc- who focus too much on this, you know, myopic nature and, and, and forget to think about the big picture and sell the vision, right, um, and tell the story and the narrative. And I think that is an important component because you're going to be telling a story to... Your venture investors a story to your employees. You know, if you go public to Wall Street, right? And so you have to have this balance of the creativity, the storytelling, uh, as well as the fundamentals, right? And those, to me, are the people who you know make up the best profile for CEOs.
0: How often do you get in a situation where the founder comes in and they're so nervous it makes the meeting difficult? <laughs> they're tripping up over stuff. They're fumbling. They're fumbling you know, they're uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, this is a big medium for them. How often does that happen?
1: Not as much as you'd think. I I think, uh, hopefully, you know, people don't feel, you know, threatened or whatever we try to, you know, I try to, to, to create an environment and tell a story of my failures and be very transparent that I've been through the hard times just like any other founder. Um, and so the founder struggle should be something that's natural and, and okay because we all go through it. But, I, I tend to find that most people are confident or if, if not, they can at least mask it for that hour they're sitting across yeah. from me. So it's very rare for <laughs> very you to rare. get somebody yeah. fun with. Yeah. I'm, I'm not important <laughs> enough. <Yeah. laughs>
0: um, what uh, market segments do you have a uh, unique thesis on in your fund where you're really looking at, hey, you know, This is a underserved or, you know, a a segment that's really interesting.
1: Yeah. So we've done uh, a bunch of direct-to-consumer investments. Um, You know, one of them is Lust Brands. They're based up in Toronto. Uh, It's a hair care product for uh, African-American women uh, that focuses on curly, wavy and kinky hair, It's shampoo, conditioner and all in one. Um, you know, it's a product my wife uses, you know, yeah. and, 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 uh, you know, I had a conversation with the founder and I was like, there's nobody out there who's creating a brand presence, you know, here in this space, uh, around hair care, um, uh, for this segment and curly haired women. And so, you know, I think <clears throat> the way that I look at it is, is there an underserved, you know, market that isn't the me the needs aren't being met and there's an authentic voice and, you know, product being created by the CEO. You know, We Shave is one that we recently did uh, with Karen in New York uh, focused on, you know, um, female care. Um, I think she's a phenomenal CEO. So certainly direct-to-consumer is one of those that we formed a hypothesis around, you know, the, the care space. Um, gaming is another one. Uh, you know our thesis in gaming is really around three things you know core IP we look for people who are creating original IP that's unique um, that goes across platform focused on multiplayer we didn't an investment um, in in a a game studio called Kite and Lightning um, that's based out in LA that's making a a battle royale game that's a fighter so you know my generation we had Tekken and Street Fighter um, Mortal Kombat you know but what What was your favorite player (laughs) well this one so so this studio, and I'll get back, this studio is creating uh, what I believe is the Fortnite version of a fighting game, right? Free to play, monetized through in-app purchases, uh, cross-platform, and I think that there's a huge market potential there, right? And, and that they're creating it. Then we have that social layer around community um, that we think gaming if you saw what happened you know last week in Fortnite one of the largest concerts in the world happened 60 million people are sitting there flying hovering in being spawned you know participating in a music concert not even playing Fortnite but on the platform and so we do think that there's going to be a lot of social and community elements in and around gaming. Uh, we invested in Players Lounge, which is head-to-head wagering on games of skill. So if you and I wanted to to go and play a game of Madden right now, I could pick my team, you pick yours, wager $10 each. Platform gets gets a 10% cut. You know the winner takes the rest. So. That's the second component, and then the third component is really around tech and tools um, and infrastructure and gaming uh, I've been spending a lot of time in the cloud gaming space um, most recently. Uh, I think we're going to see the same things that we saw in the you know the the film business and the movie business going from physical purchases going to the cloud. you're already starting to see that, but there's more and more opportunity there. So you know for every single market that we go in direct to consumer, whether it's gaming, you know we develop our philosophies around those verticals um, and try to find the best founders, you know. All of the founders that I've mentioned there, African-American, Latino founders, you know, doing something really unique in their market and their vertical.
0: Uh, Back to Street Fighter 2.
1: Street Fighter, um, I, yeah, I was a Tekken yeah. guy. I don't okay. know, you know, so. Uh,
0: did you guys look at Bevel? You mentioned, you know, you invested in a hair uh, products company. Yeah. Did you look at that uh, deal at any
1: point? I think that they looked at it prior to my time okay. um, coming into the fund. Uh, you know, obviously given, you know, Dollar Shave Club, we had a lot of familiarity with the with the market. I think that we always look at it as a portfolio construction, you know, uh, You know, density and where we're, we're putting our dollars to work. Um, and, you know, we had a good amount of money out allocated into a business already. And obviously Dollar Shave was a phenomenal outcome. I think it was a $1.6 billion exit. Um, so it was a great return for the fund, but you know, I don't have much exposure into that one.
0: Do you guys have any initiatives where, okay, I'm looking for all these things in terms of unit economics. You need this understanding, you know, this is not a charity, but there's a, uh, cultural deficiency in terms of the legacy of white supremacy uh, and racism in the United States where black America is a bit behind in terms of other communities. So to get the community up to the level where they have a higher probability of getting a check from you, uh, do you guys do anything kind of internally to, to provide kind of knowledge stimulus in the community?
1: Yep. So I sort of think of this one as hand-to-hand combat when I talk about it, right? Um, as opposed to bringing in the army, you know, we kind of send in the special forces. And so, you know, we do things, um, as an example, with Gunderson Detmer, you know, office hours around uh, legal, you know, and, and what to look for in term sheets, right? And and uh, what are the gotchas, and, and side letters, and expectations of the seed versus the A, and you know, how does, how does the cap tables work? And so we'll run workshops where we go and set up and identify office hours, whether it's at Black Tech Week or Afrotech or, um, you know, just in New York, right, on a Friday afternoon where we bring people in. So we'll do this around cloud services, where we have partnerships with all of the major uh, players in the space, uh, where we'll offer up special credits, Um, you know, and and really what it comes down to, and and the reason why I got into into venture investing was really to help founders, right? That was my goal was, you know, deploying capital is great and cutting checks, but I know that out of the 500 meetings I'm going to take in a year, I'm going to invest in five or six founders. You're the other taking meetings a year? Yeah. The yeah. other 495 or 493 that I take... That's just about building, right? It's trying to have an honest dialogue. How can I be helpful? Do you want feedback on your deck? You know, what does it look like? So, you know, we have some things that we've done at sort of an institutional level where we have office hours and workshops and work with partners. A lot of it just comes down to spending time with founders. I feel like that's where you get the most value is those one-on-ones. We do founder dinners. We do venture networking events. Um, It's busy. We're always just grinding trying to help.
0: You probably read about over the last, month or so. There's been about 2000 layoffs in the middle and the media industry. So, you know, BuzzFeed, McClatchy, there's a depression, right? A lot of deflation in the media industry. When you think about the duopoly of Google and Facebook taking up to 80% of mobile ad dollars. You know, they have the market on lock uh in terms of their their scale, their political lobbying uh lack of regulation. Do you feel like they should be held accountable for the bear market in media where it's harder and harder for people to get quality media? And for, you know, we we saw Cambridge Analytica, uh, that issue, the the political issue with uh, Facebook, uh, but it's getting harder and harder to provide quality information that's ad supported. And so, you know, politically, how do you think that should be addressed, uh, particularly with uh, Facebook and Google?
1: It's an interesting time to be in media, right? This is a disruption that started 15 years ago. And you saw print subscriptions dropping and online lagging and now not being able to keep pace. You know, from a fund perspective, you know, we've done, you know, investments in things like the athletic, right? Which is subscription based content. Uh, And I do believe that most people are willing to pay for quality product. I believe in that. Um, you look at you know, New York Times, right? They had, I think they just announced $800 million a quarter yeah. um, in digital this year. Um, you look at, there's a great founder um, who started a company called Nickel. Um, and what they're doing is taking different types of bundling content. So let's imagine, you don't want to subscribe to the New York Times for an entire year, but you think that their political uh, coverage leading up to the elections are great. Yeah. Um, you can just take that part of the content, bundle it up, use their SDK, and have that coverage go on for a 30 day window leading up to um, the primaries, right? So I tend to think less about the regulatory environment in my shoes. I'm sure that other people spend more time there. Uh, the place where I spend most of my time is thinking through what are either tech and platform solutions or lasting media businesses where people are willing to spend time and money. Um, and I believe those investment opportunities are out there and we are going to see um, a rise of what we're seeing happen in streaming video right yeah. and now with taking content and creating something that's compelling that people are willing to pay for.
0: Yeah, let's try to take you out of the the Comcast Ventures VCC yeah. and, and say, hey, look. If Google and Facebook are going to take all the advertising money or most of the ad money and where other entrepreneurs or media companies are going to have to all go subscription because they're going to take all the ad money structurally, you know, there seems to be issues because there's just so much kind of app space on on someone's phone or there's going to be limitations of every, everybody rolling out subscriptions, of course. Uh, And so... What does that mean for the degradation of people getting information efficiently where I believe that that could be that could become a systemic risk to democracy yeah. or, uh, you know, certain things that we've become
1: um, used to? Right. I was just actually over at the Knight Foundation uh, talking to their team about this exact issue, uh, and they do a lot of work um, around this particular topic of uh f- honest, um, you know, statistically relevant factual news, right, and reporting and and trying to start initiatives where funding local news, right, that will allow you to get um, this type of access. You know, I think there's probably two areas to unbundle there, right? One of them is you know, what is going on in the advertising space, right? Where's the flow of dollars, right? And how does that revenue distribution go back to independent publishers who might not be able to roll out large scale subscription offerings, right? And, and generate a profit in that way. I don't know what the right answer is, right? From a regulatory environment, right? I, I feel like oftentimes big tech is an easy out, yeah, right? For people to say, oh, I'm going to blame these companies for all of the problems that are happening in advertising, right? Well, you talk to a lot of people out there, they're still buying users and buying traffic from those entities. And it's the most effective way beyond TV and radio. So you have the same people complaining about lack of monetization on a platform. And at the same time, they're buying, buying users. Right. So,
0: well, everybody's, there's a little bit of that, right. Going on. Everybody's locked in. I mean, once the, the duopoly or monopoly, uh, has been executed and the users are locked in, you know, I call in the question conventional views of choice. Right. Where if everybody is concentrated on, on these platforms, the amount of choice people, our businesses have, uh, yeah. are, are, are limited. So I'm gonna give you a couple of, uh, reports and facts. So, All right. So one, uh, it's been reported that Senator out of New York, uh, Charles Schumer, uh, his daughter works at uh, Facebook also, It's been reported by the New York Times that uh, Mark Warner wanted to investigate Facebook, and Charles Schumer told uh, Mark Warner to back off. Chuck Schumer, or Charles Schumer, he has relationships, it looks like, with uh, Sheryl Sandberg. Nancy Pelosi, her family, uh, they own millions of dollars of Facebook stock, and they've been buying the dip. Uh, Of course, Facebook's uh, share price has uh, dropped and they've, they've still been buying all the scandals. But the Pelosi family, mostly, I guess you could say her husband is buying Facebook stock. Because under the Obama administration, there was a lack of regulation. There wasn't, you know, we didn't hear about any kind of consumer privacy report. There wasn't any real legislation to police Big tech in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. like a lot of black and brown people, are policed in the streets, meaning that the corporate behavior, I believe, was not regulated. Do you have any feelings about the coziness of mainly corporate Democrats in Silicon Valley where, hey, you know, we're, we're backing a lot of the Demo- uh, Democrat uh, politicians, their friends, they have elite networks, and Cory Booker's case. Uh, a lot of the elites invested in a company that was sold. Uh, some people, you know, are skeptical. But do you believe there should be fundamental distance between our politicians and corporate interests that are looking to lobby and impair regulations where their interests come before the public? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah.
1: I mean, when you when you look at it, it's it, that that problem is not unique to tech right? That yeah, revolving sure. door of for people sure. coming yeah. in and yeah. going out to industry, right? And lobbying yeah. on behalf and then getting a cozy job, yeah. you know, post, you know, a uh, uh, term, right? And serving as a politician that's been going on for years. Right. And I think the revolving door um, problems that we have are terrible. Um, you know, so,
0: so like, would you be skeptical? Like, Hey, Eric Holder, justice department, DOJ, there's not a lot of talk about Silicon Valley. Of course, the Obama and Eric Holder in the bed with Silicon Valley, but he goes and starts getting checks as soon as uh, he leaves uh, out of Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley companies are now paying him to do work.
1: Yeah, do you have an issue with yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, like I said, this has been going on for years. It's, it's, I don't think it's unique to the Obama administration. Like, I think it goes back, it predates that, right? Yeah. Um, it's a problem, and you know, I think there's a couple of solutions. One of them, I actually think. Pay politicians more, right? Like make it a compelling job that kids want to go into, right? Right now, if you talk to you know people who are like, "Oh, I want to go in and, and, and uh, be a politician," right? Look, how many kids are coming out of high school saying that they want to go into industry? They want to go in, like pay the right amount of money to attract the talent, so that people don't have to rely on lobbyists when they get out of office. Right, I actually think that there's an argument to be made um,
0: A lot of these people like Nancy Pelosi, yeah. you're talking about multi-millionaires, yeah. uh, a lot of these uh, uh, politicians Eric Holder I, I, I don't think it's the question of hey can they make a sufficient income it's hey I can make 5 or 10 million by consulting for Goldman Sachs or doing this stuff or going to UBS or, 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 or whatever uh, that it's greed. Hey, I got You know, I make a living, and I'm gonna go grab the biggest check. Uh, but you know, I, I think there's there needs to be a movement uh, to break up this coziness uh, with corporate interests. Yeah,
1: I agree. I mean, look, when I look at this type of um, political and you know social progress, right? You talk about the fact that marijuana is now decriminalized or legal in many states and there are people making a ton of money millions of dollars off of this you know cannabis industry and there are thousands you know hundreds of thousands of people locked up for low level marijuana crimes in the country right so how can we say as a society that it's okay now, past some point in time and date? Hey, guess what? You can have all the weed that you want yeah. and make money off of it. But this kid was caught with a nickel bag and is going to spend six months in Rikers until his trial comes up, yeah. right? And so I think our system is fundamentally broken in the way that you know change is slow, right? Um, and what we're seeing in society and technology is outpacing the ability of politicians and the people that are dictating and making policy are either self-serving Uh, Oftentimes or don't understand the fundamentals of how the technology is impacting society and that gap is causing some of these issues.
0: If Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, who are both running for president, if they came to you and sat with you for kind of two hours to better understand black America and its relationship with technology and the new economy, mm-hmm. what can be done from a policy perspective, uh, whether it's Congress or, you know, the, 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 uh, a new administration, a Kamala Harris or yep. Cory Booker administration? Where would you start in terms of, hey, there needs to be a policy yep. that tackles this inequality? Yep. Because if you don't tackle this inequality that's coming out of Silicon Valley— you're going to see more activity like the yellow vest protesters in uh, France or Brexit or Trump that this causes risk to the society, including yeah. economic risk. Yeah. If you don't have a po- you can't think about a policy solution to address yeah. this.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, disinformation um, is a form of warfare. And we've seen, you know, the cyber policies of, you know, uh of states acting against the interest of the U.S., right, and intentionally spreading this. I mean, it's factual. Our national intelligence services have validated that, whether people wanna believe it or not. When you talk about the relationship of you know African American uh, population, Latino population as it pertains to tech, I think you know there's sort of three components that I, I think about. One is access. We need to start thinking of internet access more as utility access, like wa- clean water, um, like we think of it as any other basic human right. Right. The digital divide is still very real. People need access to the internet. Right. And so there needs to be policy around access. Um, I think the second component of that is around education um, and ensuring that as the you know, um, RPA and and AI type solutions come out that are automating low level tasks that you don't have a generation of people who were typically in service level jobs that are now completely wiped out and left behind. Right, you need to have computer science, engineering uh, backgrounds that are, you know, pervasive throughout the black black community uh, in order to reduce that gap moving moving forward. Um, And then the third one is really around, you know, It's fascinating to me you know, what came out of the Me Too movement, right? And what came out of the Me Too movement and the flow of dollars on the private equity and venture side is actually fascinating. So you have a lot of large pension funds, uh, family offices, high net worth individuals that are, you know, contributors that said, look, we're against any of these issues. Um, You know, we want to ensure that venture funds have a female partner, have a seat at the table, right? We're no longer going to fund venture firms that don't have female partners, um, and you've seen a lot of female partners being hired at places, um, you know, at, at, at large funds, um, They're being or promoted forced into it
0: kind of, you, the, some of the top firms were kind of, Hey, you know, don't tell us to hire a female partner. You know, uh, that's not really helping anything. And here's our case.
1: So, right. you know, where are African-American and Latinos in that, right? Yeah. When I see who's getting those positions I'm not saying it's a bad thing at all. Women should have a seat at the table. African-Americans should have a seat at the table. Latinos should have a seat at the table as well. But the same sort of institutional change isn't coming down, right? And so, you know, I think that type of policy, when you look at, you know, how is the flow of capital, which is directly pension funds owned and run, managed by states, right? Who can impact this and say, you need to have African-American and Latino partners or we're not going to provide the same level of funding and anchor checks in some of these funds. What
0: about going a little bit further and saying, look, When we look at auto loans and we look at the mortgage industry, when you look at most industries in the United States, the government itself has found systemic discrimination, right? Uh, So the government looking at Google identifying discrimination against women. The government looking at Oracle. The government looking at Palantir uh, finding racial discrimination. Do you believe there needs to be a national policy where investors, uh, venture capital and private equity, they have to be transparent about the numbers in terms of the people coming in the doors, the check sizes, and that data needs to be opened up. We're not forcing anybody to do anything, but you can't trust it. Meaning that based on the pattern of uh, racism and discrimination, at minimum, you need to open that data up. You need to track that data.
1: Yeah, I think you know, overall, I think transparency is the right thing and it's important. I'm always leery of using policy to impact private business, right? In a way, um, because it sets a precedent for other aspects of managing private businesses that does make sense, right? Where you want to keep things about your cap table or whatever makes sense private, right? So as an investor, I feel two ways about it, right? It's like, yeah. hey, I definitely don't want to be forced to open up my books to the world, right? Um, And that's why you run a private entity. Uh, At the same time, you know, as an African-American in the tech ecosystem, I want to know those numbers for damn sure, right? And I want to make sure that everything's being done to change them. Um, Again, I don't know if I have the right answer, right, and what the solution is. um, But it's not going to change on its own. Yeah.
0: That's for damn sure. Yeah, particularly, you know, we're seeing that, uh, for particularly public w- companies, it's w- a lot w- easier. With Facebook, right? they have to be embarrassed or they need government or they need they need something on them to change. They're not kind of changing on their own. Uh, so speaking of Facebook, there's a, there was an article in the Washington Post. The writer said Facebook is psychopathic. Uh, and for the audience, uh, as a reminder, this is the definition of psychopathy or, or, or one Psychopathy is traditionally a personality disorder characterized by persistent antisocial behavior, impaired empathy and remorse and bold, disinhibited and egotistical traits. Okay, so this writer in the Washington Post says this as a culture, Facebook is psychopathic, meaning uh, that, you know, there's a lack of empathy, right? It's antisocial behavior. And so if... Organizations like Facebook are going to act like governments in terms of they're hiring lobbyists. Uh, they're enforcing how communications happen. Uh, they're regulating privacy where no one's really kind of looking at them. You know, what type of risk to society would be caused if that's true, meaning that you have large influential organizations where psychopathy is in the culture there's a lack of empathy it's hard for them to connect to human beings so if they're building products and we want to move fast and break things and we need to be worth a trillion dollars and we don't care and we can't connect with human beings what type of risk does that pose for society man (laughs) lay
1: it all out the last question you know I, I think It's interesting that that you focus on the empathy component. It's the component that I try and I feel like gives me a differentiated ability to connect to entrepreneurs because I'm not just a VC sitting across the other side of the table, right? And I think what I tried to do when I started businesses was develop a tremendous amount of empathy with every single person I ever brought onto my team, right? And at the core of who we are as human beings, right, is this desire to connect, right, sit around a campfire and tell stories. And, like, that's really what it comes down to, right? Um, I think any organization that lacks empathy um, will inevitably be a house of cards. You can't sustain uh, without it. Um, it's core to who every single human being is. When you take that and, you know, sort of put it on a grander scale on how... Lack of empathy impacts products and product design. I think a lot of the studies that we've seen come out around social media and the unhealthy nature with which, you know, either you post or consume and what you want that to mean in the perceived version of yourself as opposed to your true self. And that becomes detrimental, it becomes unhealthy. Um, and That in and of itself can be a form of disinformation, whether or not you're talking about bots and spreading of fake news or if you're talking about individuals and how they represent themselves. And so, you know, look, I I don't have a Facebook account. I don't have an Instagram account. Um, I had to sign up for one for two years when I ran a company because we had Facebook off. (laughs) So you can't actually develop tools on Facebook without signing up for an account. Um, and so I realized I think early on sort of the hooks that they were trying to drive in and be the authentication layer on the on the internet and you know we're seeing a backlash against that now um, and I think we're seeing um, you know initial headwinds of how society feels and the perception of big tech when they feel like they've been misled and led astray and not given a hundred percent of the truth and that's impacted, itself and shareholder value that's impacted itself in the form of engagement. Um, And, you know, I think users will, what makes this generation unique of seeing change in technology and digital, right? It took us probably 80 years in the industrial revolution to understand the impact of what burning fossil fuels will do on our environment. We're just starting to learn what the impact of social networks and the massive spread of information in a moment's notice can do to a society with changing election results. Um, and you know I think the, the, the cycles in which we learn because of digital are getting shorter and shorter, but the impact becomes outsized. And so we're the first generation who's grown up as digital natives growing up on the internet And we didn't know what sharing all of your information could do. We didn't understand the ramifications that, you know, sharing all of your information for a free service could come back to bite you in the ass. And people are starting to wise up to it, right? And that's a change. And so I think we're in for another generation of massive change of people who are digital first, online and social, and now fundamentally understand both the good and bad that that brings.
0: How crazy do you think this idea is? When the entrepreneur is closer to Zuckerberg, the, the character and moral, psychological makeup, you're, you have a higher probability of success, right? So there, there's variance in cultures, obviously. What would you say that black entrepreneurs, black people, have a disadvantage culturally in the tech space, Silicon Valley ecosystem, Because of the cultural makeup in terms of empathy, in terms of uh, the level of humanity, and in terms of the growing up, more people growing up in the church, in terms of you're not built culturally to move fast and break things and build things that could potentially hurt you. You're not built to only look at. How much, how big this thing can get, and I don't care in in terms of your connectivity with other human beings. Do you think it's crazy that there's a disadvantage culturally in black America because we may score lower on a Zuckerberg psychopath uh, uh, scoring system?
1: Look, I can say that. 90 to 95% of the black and brown founders that walk through my door ask for less than any other founder who sets foot through my office. They just ask for less money. They might have the same traction. They might have the same aspirations and dreams. They ask for less. And that privilege, that access you know, um, psychologically, culturally, where it's do more with less, the hustle hard, grinded out nature of everything, you know, that plays on the psyche every single meeting that I have, guaranteed.
0: That's an important point of asking for less. It's just consistent with uh, studies uh, in the mortgage market where they say that the discrepancy between the, the black borrower and the white borrower is the black borrower consistently under-negotiates on race and we can see how in the, in our culture you're programmed uh, kind of to be at a disadvantage and kind of you know, you're at, you're asking for less.
1: Uh, Privilege is real. Yeah. Like people come in the door and they have no qu- no problems asking for five million dollars. Sometimes I'm like, for yeah. what? Barely built anything. Somebody will come through with real traction. I'm like, I need three hundred and fifty thousand dollars so I can hire a couple engineers. You know, and that's like the the rift that I see oftentimes. Is that big? Are you conflicted from? Hey, you need to you
0: need to represent your fund and get the best deal for your fund. But hey, brother and sister, you you lowballing yourself based on what the market is. Are you're, you, you're, you're
1: always like, trying to buy up in value right like at the end of the day you know you're trying to own as much equity as you possibly can in a good business right yeah um and so yeah I, I, you know there's there's a there's very few times in my life where i don't feel conflicted as who i am as an individual and a human being right And ventures uh, uh uh, part of the professional nature of that conflict, which is you want to be as aligned as humanly possible with every single entrepreneur that comes through your door. But you have fiduciary responsibilities to the fund that you manage and trying to return capital back. So the, the very nature of why I got in, how I work, how I operate, and what I need to do in order to be successful, both from a pure happiness perspective of my life as well as a fund manager, those things oftentimes come in conflict.
0: Where can our audience uh, check you out uh, online? Twitter. Kaiso Bond. Can you spell that out for sure, the audience? It's
1: K-A-G-I-S-O-B-O-N-D.
0: I want to thank uh, Kai for coming on the show. Appreciate you for having me. Pleasure. Let's go. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You can check me out at Jamarla Martin on Twitter, and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter you can get the latest information on crypto tech economic empowerment and politics let's go